And so, Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we just read the beginning of Titus chapter 2 there. And the reality is that here we are now reading that here in a public place. Here we are having church in a park out here. And the reality is that today, everybody who walks by, everybody who's riding their bike and here at Canyon Lake today has the opportunity to look in here at Common Ground Church and to see what it's like, to see what we're about here. And the reality is that's pretty significant, that today, since we're doing church out here in public, that everyone has the chance to see the way that we talk to one another, the way that we treat one another. Everyone has the chance, if they were to walk up to us, to see how we would talk to them and behave towards them. And what I want us to really see, and I think what Titus is getting at here in chapter 2, what Paul is telling Titus, is just the importance of being able to see Jesus in someone's life. Now, Leslie Newbigin uh, was a famous British missionary around World War II, and he actually moved from England to India in 1936, and he spent a long time in India from 1936 to 1976. And when he moved back to England in the 70s, he was shocked at just how much Europe had changed, just how much England had changed, especially because at the time he left in the 30s, Christianity was the dominant faith, the dominant worldview in England. By the time he came back in the 70s, that had changed. And Newbegin was one of the first people to really point out the obvious, and that is that we need to think very differently in the English-speaking world about how we share the gospel, that we live in what is often referred to as a post-Christian culture. Uh, where people don't actually know the basics of the story of the gospel anymore. And the reality is a lot of people are not even interested. Um, and what Newbegin said is that this new way of preaching the gospel to people who are not even interested needs to take place in this way. This was Leslie Newbegin then in the 70s. He said that the only way in which Christians can communicate the gospel to a world that has no interest in the gospel is by doing what Jesus did. That is, by making visible a new way of being human. A way that exhibits the presence of the new age of the reign of God. A way that is both personal and political, both communal and individual, both evangelistic and social. It means doing the works of the kingdom. Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. And what Newbegin is pointing out is that in England in the 70s, and 50 years later, I think it's pretty true about our culture today, that what people need to see is us not just believing the gospel, not just preaching it, but living it. Being examples to our neighbors of Jesus. That one of the primary ways in which we are called to preach the gospel is through the way that we live our lives. And so it matters the way that we live. And people should essentially be able to look into this community, be able to look into Common Ground Church, and see the gospel through our speech, through our actions, through our everyday behavior. People should be able to wonder, okay, well, what is the gospel all about? What are Christians like? And then they could see how we love one another. They could see how we treat one another. And they'd be able to see that there. And that's, I think, what Titus is getting to here in chapter 2. That it matters how we live. In chapter 1, he was talking all about how important it is to believe sound doctrine. And we talked a little bit about heresy last week and the importance of believing sound doctrine. And here now, he's saying to be examples of it, to actually be sound doctrine. And as we went through, we saw he has this very specific list. He has lists of things to do. And we kind of went through this funny list of behaviors for different age groups. 
And before we get into that and we get into the specifics, I just want to kind of give us a framework that I think we should understand when we approach this list. Um, and this is what I would have a slide for. And maybe you noticed, maybe you were digging around in the app, but we actually have sermon notes there in the app, and you can see these main bullet points there. But for those of you taking notes, there are really four things I want you to get about this list before we make our way into it. Um, the first is that this is not just an exhaustive list. This isn't an exhaustive list of Christian morality. right? This is a sample. This is a sample of what the Jesus life looks like. You know, Paul is giving Titus just a couple of things for each group here to look at, a couple of things for them to worry about. Um, but we can be sure that it didn't stop there, right? I'm sure that he was basically saying, we don't have to fix everything at once, right? He's writing to this island where piracy and violence was rampant. And essentially, he's saying, let's start small. Let's start with the fundamentals. We're going to start with the fundamentals of what it looks like to follow Jesus in community here. And so this isn't meant to be exhaustive. This is just a small sample. These are the basics, the fundamentals of living like Jesus in community. The second thing, if you're taking notes, I would say the second bullet point is that this list is written for us, but we have to recognize it wasn't written to us, right? We talk about this a lot, that there are things that Paul is addressing specifically in these churches in Crete. Uh, we give an amen to this. Uh, we affirm that this is a good way to live, that this is a teaching that's applicable for us today. But this list is specific to the Cretan church. Um, the things that these age groups were struggling with, that Paul is addressing here, might not necessarily be uniformly struggled with by every single age group in every culture. Uh, for instance, one of the things that Paul told the older women right, was uh, stop drinking so much wine. Uh, now, I didn't check with all of you older women, uh, but... From the impression I get, I don't think this is necessarily the biggest problems that we face here. Um, but apparently in Crete, this was. That this was one of the big issues that they were facing there. Now, what this means is not necessarily, all right, you older ladies, don't worry about it. This isn't our culture. Have fun. No, this just means it's going to take a little bit of contextualizing for us to really recognize, well, what is he saying here? He was addressing this specific issue there, and we have to contextualize that for ourselves. The third thing that I would want you to notice about this list is notice that this list is all about reputation, right? That everything on this list is something done in public. Things that people can see from the outside looking in, right? None of these are like internal heart issues. None of these are like between you and God issues. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about stuff between you and God, about personal integrity, who you are in private. But this list that we just read, it's not about that. This is all stuff that people you are in relationship with would be able to see. This is all stuff that the public looking in at Christians would be able to notice. And the important thing there, and what Paul has said over and over again, is that our reputation is at stake here. That this is essentially about our reputation, how we portray ourselves. Because then, number four. And number four is that, well, number three is that this is about our reputation. Number four is that ultimately this is about Jesus' reputation. Right? That we are children of God. And the way that we behave, the way that we live, actually reflects on our Father, right? And we don't need to just talk about this in a negative way. We can talk about this in the positive way as well, that we have this great opportunity as God's children to live in such a way that would make him attractive to others, that would make others see, wow, look at the way they love others. Look at the way that they care for others. Jesus is looking attractive. And it's a beautiful thing. We hear story after story of many of you who love your neighbors well, who love your friends well, who love your coworkers well, who love this community well. And in the process, 
are making Jesus's reputation improved. Um, that is a beautiful thing. And that, I think, is one of the key parts of this passage. Um, but again, then, what we have to look at, anytime we approach a passage that's kind of a list of do's and don'ts or a list of advice like this, I think we have to be really careful to understand why Paul is instructing it. And there are three verses that I really want us to see as a framework for why Paul instructs this before we go through each one. The first one you can see in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, Paul is giving the reasons for why these things are important. And in verse 5 he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. Right? No one will malign the word of God. Because at that time, as these Christians are making their way around Crete, and as the Cretans see that the way they live, uh, they didn't have just Bibles on their phones like we do now, where they're able to check and see, like, okay, Nick is a Christian, Nick lives this way. Is he struggling with stuff, or is this actually how Christians are supposed to live? They didn't have the opportunity to check that. And so Paul is saying that in the way you behave, you give people an opportunity to bash Jesus. Be very aware of that. Behave this way so that no one will be able to malign the word of God. Right? That people are going to be looking at you and thinking, these guys are a little kooky, a little crazy. But we have this opportunity to live in such a way that would not give people reason then to malign God's word. Uh, Verse 8, another reason we see here. In verse 8, Paul said that so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So this is a really high standard. And this would be a really difficult thing, right? But what he is saying is live in such a way that the people watching would have nothing legitimately bad to say about us, right? They would have to make stuff up about you. Because again, it's the reputation of Jesus that's at stake. So are we living in such a way that would not give people anything bad to say about us? Now it's in this same chapter. We didn't read it yet, but verse 10, another support for what Paul is instructing here. The reason that this list, the reason these behaviors are important. In verse 10, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. All of these instructions that Titus is supposed to give to this church is done for this. So that they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And this is the message for you and I, essentially. That the way that we live in front of others matters. The way that we behave, the way that we are in relationships matters. And we have this potential to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And so this essentially, this is Christianity 101. This is the fundamentals of what it looks like to follow Jesus in public. And the Apostle Paul really laid it out in an interesting way. He addressed certain age groups. And I know we get a little uncomfortable with addressing age groups in that way. Uh, But maybe you could see it like this, and maybe this will disarm us just a tiny bit. Uh, we're outside, and anytime you're outside, it's, I think, a requirement that I use a sports analogy because I like sports and I don't care who knows. Uh, but currently, uh, for some reason, every year I think that I'm not too old to continue to pretend to be an athlete. And so I'm playing on an amateur baseball team this year. And baseball is a very specific sport. There are a lot of different positions. And each position actually requires very specific skills, a very specific body type even, and even sometimes very different temperament. Um, Football is another similar sport that you can usually tell just by the way someone looks, by the way they are, maybe what position they would play. Linemen tend to look like linemen, tend to act like linemen, you know, quarterbacks tend to kind of look and act like that. And baseball is pretty similar. You can kind of look and determine what position someone plays um, based on some of these things. And I think essentially what Paul is instructing Titus here about 
is that Titus has this new team here. He's got all these new little churches starting up. And he's telling him, here's how you instruct people not to have to worry about everything, right? The Christian life is full, it's robust. Jesus is going to change every single aspect of your life. But you don't have to worry about just everything yet. The instruction here is essentially, what is your position? And you only have to worry about playing your position. Older men, you're worried about the older men's stuff. Older women, you're worried about the older women's stuff. Younger women, you don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. Play your position. And that, I think, is why he goes so specifically into these teachings. Is The instruction for us is there's a lot that goes on in living the Christian life. But what he's saying is if you can just focus on the fundamentals of playing your own position, then that is a good place to start. That is a good place to start. And so that's what he's doing. He's trying to lay out this foundation for the community. Here's how you play your position. And he begins with everybody's favorite group, right? He begins with the older men. And now as we go through this, I'm not going to tell you where the divide between like older women and younger women are. I'm not crazy. I'm going to let you decide for yourself uh, which group you belong in. But he begins here, older men. He says to Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So there's a lot here. I'm not going to be able to go through every single one, but being temperate, right? Don't let that stereotype of the cranky old man be true of you. Be worthy of respect, right? Older men, we know what all of you want. It's respect. Be worthy of that. Self-controlled, sound in faith. And then there's this one word that I really want to focus on, because... The word endurance is only told here to the older men. He says, be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Um, because you see there's a tendency back then, and even a tendency today, to work really, really hard for the first two-thirds of your life, so that then the final third of your life can be spent golfing, fishing, barbecuing, getting perfect diagonal lines in the grass every week, right? And this is continuing to be a tendency. For us today. Now, none of those things are bad. None of those things are bad for you older men who are into those sort of things. But what Paul, I think, is saying here with this instruction to endure is that just because you're an older man does not mean your life is over. Life does not end at 67. Life does not end at the point in which you retire. That you are not designed to just coast. You are not designed to just have nothing left to offer anymore that older men are encouraged here to endure. That you are made to be a worker. You're made to have something to contribute. And that doesn't end just because then someone says, you're old now. That doesn't stop. And we see this all throughout the Bible. In Joshua chapter 14, um, you have Caleb, the spy, um, who had faith and confidence that the promised land would be taken. And at age 40, he had this vision that they were going to take the promised land, and he was really excited about it. But God said it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time then. And it wasn't until Caleb was 85 years old that the day finally came. And God said, all right, you can go take the promised land. And at 85 years old, Caleb didn't say, well, it's too bad it took so long. You young guys, you go have fun. No, no, no. Caleb was like, get me my walker and a sword. Today we are going to take this mountain. And at 85 years old, he went in with everyone else and took the promised land. And so older men, I think God's encouragement to you here is don't quit. Keep enduring. Don't fall into the trap that says, you know, your best days are behind you. Uh, you have nothing left to offer. You're old and you're, 
you know, disconnected from the way things are. I think God wants the older men to hear that you are not written off. God is not done with you. God still wants to use you. And it's important that you would continue to seek after God. You would continue to be serving. You would continue to pour into the younger generation. It is critically important for you older men to play your position here. Would you be holding to sound doctrine? Would you endure? Would you play your position? Then Paul gets, verse 3, to the older women. He says, Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but teach what is good. Now, I'm not going to go through everything here, but he just has some instructions here. Being reverent, right? A temple-fitting life. Remember that inside of you is the Holy Spirit. Would you live in a way that reflects God's presence in your life? Then he has this specific instruction that's only given to the older women here, and that is don't be slanderers. Or some uh, translations of the Bible might say, be gossips. Essentially, don't be the place where the gossip starts, where the complaining starts. The place where it begins with saying, you know, look at just how bad the young people are. Look how bad things have gotten. Look how terrible everything is now. Um, Nobody cares like I care. I'm the only one doing any work. The instruction here is not to get to that point. And here's the thing. This might be offensive, and I might have to apologize for it later. But I've been in a lot of different church contexts over the years. And if there is one group in just about every church that seems to do the majority of the work, that seems to be the ones carrying more of the weight than any other demographic, tends to be the older women. It tends to be. Any church that's doing a lot, they probably have a lot of older women who are just serving really hard. And the temptation in a lot of those cases, especially for older women, is to think nobody else cares but me. I'm the only one doing the work. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one who is actually doing some of this work. And here's the thing, and again, this might be a little offensive, but we have to recognize that the older women, you probably know a thing or two, and this instruction not to be slanders, I think is related to your ability probably to be really good at seeing problems, because that can be a tendency. Um, There's probably a reason that our culture has made a slur out of the name Karen. (laughs) That you probably have this ability that not everyone has to see what needs to be done, to see the way things should be done. And the instruction here is that would you use that ability, that vision to see what needs to be done, what should be done, to build up, to encourage, not to tear down, not to slander. Right? You might be good at seeing those problems. This is an encouragement to use that vision that you have to build up, to build up and to encourage. And especially for the younger generation, right? That if you could be a person who speaks life, even though you know the reality, you probably see it better than anybody else, but you would be a person who displays the Holy Spirit inside of you to others. I think that's the instruction here. To play your position. And then he has this instruction that would you love, invest in, and encourage younger women? Would you speak life into others in order to, for them and you, to fix your eyes on the gospel and to play your position there? That's the instruction. In verses 4 and 5, he has this instruction to younger women. Now, if you have ever met anyone who's not the biggest fan of Christianity, who might say that Christianity is old, it's archaic, it's outdated, um, Christians are just patriarchal, they put women down, they think men are superior. If you've ever met anyone like that, then this passage might be one of those passages that they find and use as ammunition against you. That they will throw at you and say, just look, you know, Christianity is outdated, it's old, 
has all these weird instructions that are really just oppressive here for younger women. And one thing to address just as we get there is I would say this is not at all what Paul is doing here. In fact, it's kind of fascinating that Paul doesn't even give direct instructions to the younger women, but instead he's encouraging older women to give instruction to the younger women. I don't know what to say about that, but I think it's really interesting because Paul is often kind of pitched as a he-man woman hater a lot of the times. But you can just see the gentleness here. Essentially what he's saying is that older women have learned a thing or two. And you have the opportunity to pass this on to the younger generations out of love. And then he has some sound instruction there. Where he says, this is where we're gonna we're gonna have fun. Some of us are gonna squirm in our seats a little bit, but that's good. We don't avoid these passages. Where he says, urge younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Uh, the first thing that I notice is the very first instruction to the younger women seems kind of funny and really kind of basic and simple. Uh, it's just to love your husbands and your children, which I don't know how bad life in Crete was for this to need to be an instruction, but things must have gotten pretty bad. Uh, but also... I guess here's what I would say about this, just as a dad and as a husband, that this seems like a really basic instruction. Yeah, love your husbands, love your kids. But husbands are not always the easiest to love. Uh, and despite what you think, I'm not all that lovable all the time either. Like, we laugh, but it's true. Um, that despite what most of us think, husbands out there, uh, we're not always the easiest to love. Um, we'll often spend too much time at work. We'll say things to our wives that we shouldn't say. Um, we'll spend money on things that we shouldn't spend money on. Right? And what Paul is saying here is, young women, you need to love your husbands because it might not be the easiest thing in the world here. Um, and he gives the older women this encouragement to give to these younger women. Um, and I'm very thankful um, for the people in my life who encourage my wife um, to love me when I am, you know, not the easiest to love. And I'll take this as an opportunity to ask for more of you to encourage her in that. And then the same is true um, for little kids, right? We love little kids. They're so cute. They have tiny little things, and it's adorable. We love them. We ooh and we ah at them. But have you ever hung out with little kids for very long? They're not always the easiest to love either, right? (laughs) I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this, but sometimes I think a mom needs to be reminded that even when the feelings aren't there, um, when the kids are not lovable, in the middle of the night, when it's like you have done absolutely everything right, but they're still just screaming at you, a reminder to still love them. Still be a picture of the gospel of a God who loves the people that are very unlovable. A God who seems to love us even when we do not do what is asked of. And so this seems like a really basic instruction here. But I think it's just another good reminder that in playing your position, you have the opportunity to display Christ to the world in loving those that might not be the easiest to love. Now, another reminder that this passage is written for us, but not necessarily to us, is that young women here uh, seems to be a synonym for a mom or a married woman, right? And that's pretty different from us today. Um, But if we know anything about Crete, uh, what most historians recognize is this was a very violent place, and this was a very rough place. And it was a place full of these pirates and full of men who would just kind of come and go as they please. And so the reality that historians recognize is there were not a lot of single women on the island of Crete because it would not have been a very safe way to live. 
Um, that people back then were essentially treated based on how well you could throw a punch. And so, today, we praise God that things are quite different today. Many of you single ladies are out there and thriving. That's great. That's awesome. This isn't to say, hey, you need to go get married and have kids immediately, right? This is the situation on Crete. This takes some contextualizing for us. But what is applicable to all is, of course, right, be self-controlled, right? Be pure. Pretty easy, right? Self-control is a universal Christian value. We care about that. Um, be pure. If you're going to be in a relationship, one man's a good plan, right? If it rhymes, it's true. Um, and then he says this. He says, be busy at home. Oh, no, you didn't, right? This is where we break out the bonnets, right? This is where uh, bring out the head coverings. Uh, again, this is one of those passages that people will get very upset about, that people will use as ammunition to be like, ah, just look at how outdated, look at how archaic Christianity is. But what I don't think Paul is doing here is saying, ladies, younger women, you can never leave your home. Uh, let me just disarm us and tell you that is definitely not what he's saying. He's not saying you can never leave your home unless you're going grocery shopping, right? That you're the only one allowed to like mop or do anything at home. Not saying that. Um, so also men don't use this as terrible ammunition to be like, you need to be busier. Words of advice, don't do that. Don't twist the Bible to say that. Um, Paul is not saying that you cannot work outside the home, that you only need to work at home, but because obviously that wouldn't match up with plenty of other places in Scripture, right? When we went through First Chronicles, we learned about Shira, the woman who built cities for like 200,000 people. It's pretty significant. She's the patron saint of female civil engineers. There is an argument, though. She was a homemaker because she made 200,000 homes. Probably a stretch, but anyway. Then you have places like Proverbs 31, right? The personification of, of wisdom. And the personification of wisdom is this woman. And you see what she's doing. She's like a merchant. She's bringing food from afar. So it doesn't seem to be just from the backyard. She's like buying fields, planting vineyards. She's making things, selling them. She's helping the poor and the needy. And I don't think they just lived in her house. Um, and so Paul is not trying to erase all of those scriptures. And he's not trying to say, you can never leave your home. Because people will twist this and they will throw this at you at times. That is not at all what Paul is saying. But if you consider these instructions that Paul is giving, consider why he might need to give these instructions. Consider what the opposite of these things might be. Right? The opposite of loving your kids and loving your husband is obviously not caring about them, hating them. Or the opposite of being busy at home would be never being home, never doing anything at home not contributing in a very important role like if you are a mom and a wife that is a very important position to play and the opposite of that is very very problematic and so what i think paul is saying is hey older women these younger women need to hear that what they do at home matters this position that they have at home matters and i know that there's a temptation amongst moms especially is that this stuff doesn't really matter right um, it's a real struggle to think that a lot of this matters when you are just wiping rears and feeding people. And what the instruction here is, is that all of this really matters. That you are sending ripples into eternity when you are playing your position at home, if this is your position, right? That this work is eternal. And the instruction then is older women encourage the younger women in this. Don't be discouraged uh, by the work at home there. But this matters. This has eternal impact. So play your position. It's not less valuable than anyone else. Play that position. Play that position. And then it has the instruction. Another touchy sub subject to us is be subject to 
husbands, right? Uh, the word submission is like every American Christian's worst nightmare. Uh, we'll read the passages that say, like, you know, you're going to suffer persecution. Uh, you're going to be hated for Jesus' sake. And we go, yes, yes. Bring on the persecution. Bring on the hatred. And then we throw the word submission out there. We can't handle that one. Um, but the reality is we have to continue to understand what submission is. What submission is not in the scripture, right? This isn't the opposite of freedom here. Um, the first thing to note about submission is obviously submission cannot be coerced, cannot be forced. That's called domination. Um, that's not called submission. That submission begins from the place of a person who is free to lay down their will for another here, right? And so submission is not ever instructed for anyone to go and enforce or get. Husbands, you never have permission to force submission because that actually defeats what submission is. Um, it's never instructed. And it's also never instructed to look for it in another person. Again, Paul is always instructing, play your position, worry about the way that you are treating others. And so it's always placed on you. It's placed on you to know, okay, well, this is part of my position here. And what we have to understand then about what submission is, a submission is more of an attitude than action sometimes, that it's going to look different in just about every situation. It's going to look different just about every relationship, every marriage. There's not always just a formula of here's what it looks like. But we have to, just through humility and patience with one another, walk through figuring out what this looks like in our context here. Right? It's not inferiority. Because one of the things that we see plainly in the relationship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, they're equal. They're equal in all senses. It would be an actual formal heresy to say otherwise, like we talked about last week. But we even see submission in the Trinity. We see Jesus, for the purpose of redemption, submitting his will to the Father. We see the Holy Spirit taking on the part of just pointing everyone in the direction of Jesus. And we see this equality in the Trinity, but yet we see, at times especially with Jesus, the laying down of his own will for the Father's will, especially at the cross there. And Jesus actually submitting to the Father there. And so we have to truly understand, like, how does the Bible lay this out? This word really feels archaic and uncomfortable for us today, but what is it actually talking about? We see this all throughout the scriptures, places like Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And while this might be used as ammunition to throw at us and be like, man, this is so archaic, this is so weird, I promise you that if we do marriage right, if the instruction to husbands then is to lay down your life for your wife, just as Christ laid down his life for you, if we do that right, I don't think the watching world would ever look at a Christian marriage and say, this is oppressive, this is archaic, this doesn't work. If we truly love others in the place that Christ has loved us, and I think people would be able to look at that and say, that is a beautiful way to live. That is a beautiful way to put the will of another person above your own. I think if we did this right, then people would be able to look at our marriages, at our relationships, and see a beautiful picture of the gospel. Instead of being able to just twist these and malign God's word, people would look at this and see the teachings of Jesus truly as attractive. So this is an intense teaching here. But young women, the instruction here is would you play your position? Would you play 
your position? Would you fix your eyes on Jesus and see the opportunity you have to display Christ to the world? Do you live in response to the gospel in that way? And then in verse 6, in verse 6, Paul gets to young men, and Paul kind of keeps it real with the young men. Uh, he's like, hey, I'm not even going to give you guys a list. Uh, you don't need a list. I know what your Achilles heel is. Young men, you just need self-control. <laughs> like, essentially, this is what Paul says. He says, get a hold of yourselves. Um, if you guys can just control your tongues, if you can control your actions, if you can control your time, your money, if you can control your hormones, if you guys could control yourselves then that would work out much better for the church, right? And what Paul is saying is young men often want to go out and they want to be leaders in the world. They want to be leaders in the home. Paul is saying, if you are not a leader here, then you cannot lead anybody else. That's got to start here. You must be a leader inside your own brain, inside your own heart, inside your own life. And we have to address the reality that self-control is hard for young men. This seems really harsh, but I think we just have to address this. And if we just paused and we just looked out in our culture and we just asked the question, um, where's the drug use? Where's the pornography? Where's the domestic abuse? Where's the violence? As a young man myself, I feel like I'm allowed to say this, but young men, that typically lands with us. That typically exists with us. It happens with us. And what the Apostle Paul is instructing here is instead of being mastered by the world of flesh and the devil, this is a call to take control of that, to be self-controlled, to not just be swayed and tossed about by the appetites of our flesh, the pressures of the world, the algorithm on our phones, but to be self-controlled. In Proverbs, it says that a young man without self-control is a city without walls. Just anybody and everybody, anything can come and just take control, overtake it. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican commentator, said, be ruled by the desires of your body and it will murder your soul. This is the instruction here in this very small word of self-control. That the instruction here to the young men is that when we live a self-controlled life, that we can actually be a picture of the gospel, right? When we get really angry and the rage comes and we want to do something to the person that does deserve it, but when we withhold that, and we're a picture of the Jesus who was slapped and spit at and did not repay insult with insult, Right? That when we hold ourselves back from something that our flesh, that the enemy wants us to say yes to, then we are a picture of the gospel. We can be a picture of the gospel. And so, young men, this is an instruction to you to play your position. Stay true to the gospel. Be self-controlled. Live a life that looks like a response to the gospel here. Play your position in being self-controlled. And so this is the list. This is the instruction that the Apostle Paul has for us here in Titus chapter 2. Um, and my fear with any message like this when we get to kind of a list is the reality is these lists can be kind of easy. Um, this can be kind of easy for all of us to do, to just kind of go out this next week. And young men, we could be a little more self-controlled. We can drink a little less, play a few less video games, watch a few less movies. Young women, we can just, you know, say I love you once more to our husbands. Um, it can be very easy. But I think what we need to see is this isn't just about behavior modification, right? That the need here is the reputation of Jesus. It's to fix our eyes on Jesus and to recognize how are we displaying him to the world. That we need to keep our eyes on the reality that we were dead in our sins. And Jesus stepped in and now we have hope. The reality that this message was written to an island that was often wrote off as one of the most immoral people groups out there. One of the hardest people 
in which the gospel could take root. But yet the expectation is that they would see lives transformed, that they would see people who look like Jesus, even in this place. And so I don't think this is just a change of game plan of here are like five things that you can do this week to display this. I think this is an invitation to just believe in the power of the gospel for salvation, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to be encouraged in our own position that we have a Holy Spirit who is helping us to play that role, who is helping us in that position. So this is a call to us um, to make sure that people would see in our lives something different. Um, I don't believe that if we did all these things that people could look in at us and say, yeah, I don't want that, that's archaic, that's outdated. I think if we truly played our position in this way, people would be able to look at the way that we live, look at our faith, and they would be able to see a people who live differently and a people who make a teaching about their Savior beautiful. People who have hope when they shouldn't have hope. People whose lives are still a little messed up, but they seem to have joy. I think if we play our position like this, I think it'll make Jesus more attractive. And so I just want you to consider two things as we end here. These two questions just for us to consider. One, is there anything I should stop doing because it's hurting the reputation of Jesus? Is there anything in my life? Is there anything that I should stop doing because it is hurting the reputation of Jesus? Whatever the Holy Spirit's bringing in mind to you in that. Um, but also it's not just negative. Is there anything I can start doing that will make Jesus more attractive to those around me? Would we consider this this week? Is there anything that I could start doing? Is there a way to live my life? Is there something that I could implement that would make Jesus more attractive? Just as verse 10 said. Because this is the great opportunity that we have. We've been called into this game. We've been given a position. We've been given great opportunities to be a display, to be a representation of Christ. So would you consider these things? Would you consider these things so that the watching world would be able to look in and maybe say, I'm not quite sure about this whole Bible thing, but just look at the way he lives his life. Just look at the way she loves others. Just look at the integrity that she has. I think if we would be able to do this, that would definitely, in a culture that maybe is not very interested in the gospel, that that would make Jesus more attractive and open the door for us to be able to explain this great hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus' reputation is at stake here. Jesus' reputation is tied into ours. And that's a lot of pressure. That's an important role. But it's also a great opportunity, knowing that as we pursue this way of life, it can have this eternal impact. And so now, as we respond to him in worship, uh, would you please bow your heads as we pray. So, Father God, I just ask that you would give us a passion to live in a way that draws people into your arms. I just thank you for giving us your spirit to help us in this way. We just consider who we are apart from you. And we have nothing but thanks to you. Um, the joy that we have to know that you died for us, taking all of our sins on yourself. That you took it to the grave with you and you left it there, being raised to new life, to give us new life. And so we just thank you for that gift. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to give us just the passion to live in light of that freedom, in light of that new chance that we have now on the other side of the cross. That as you have been raised to new life, that you've given us this new life, this new way of living. And God, as we wrestle um, with difficult passages like this, passages that seem to go against our, our current sensibilities, would you just continue to hammer that home into our hearts and minds of what this truly means to us? 
Uh, we just submit to you. We open up our hearts and minds um, to receiving from you, to being instructed by you. And so we just ask, as we have come before you with soft hearts, that you'd be shaping, that you'd be molding, that you would be building us to look more like your son. And so Jesus, now, all we can do is respond to you in worship and just praise you for the great gift that you've given us, the great life that you have now offered us on this earth. And so we love you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with us as we enter into worship.